know, having faith, that's a beautiful thing in the sight of God. When we don't uh, give up. But when our trials produce endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, a hope that does not lead us astray. I want to encourage us today um, to, to have endurance through our various trials. We're going to finish out um, 1 Peter chapter 2 and get into a little bit of chapter 3 this morning for our last session. I'm excited to finish uh, with, this, with this last message. If you want to turn to your Bible, um, 1 Peter chapter 2, that's where we'll be today. And I want to say some words about enduring in the spirit before we jump into the passage. That will connect to our next three examples today of suffering people in First Peter. I want to say um, that endurance through our various trials in, in a way that honors God is more than just our own grit. It it's, comes from a place of abiding in the spirit. And that, that, that doesn't, isn't always the most peaceful walk. Sometimes that's uh, hourly surrender of, of having to give up on our flesh and having to give up on what we, the ways we want to react through our various trials and find ourselves walking in the spirit. I want to remind us that going through various trials and suffering uh, in, while we're walking in the spirit doesn't mean that we don't feel pain. It doesn't mean that we don't feel hardship, we don't feel heartache, we don't feel loss, we don't feel struggle. But what it means is that our souls are yielded to Jesus and Jesus alone. And even that, I believe, comes from the Spirit. We've been talking this week about delighting ourselves in the Lord and giving Him the desires of our heart, allowing Him to refine them, about giving Him the places where our hopes need and allowing them, Him to refine them. And I want to remind us that that's not just our own will, but the Holy Spirit working in our will. And we're kind of helpless without the Spirit to do that, but the Spirit is faithful to do that. I overheard a conversation yesterday. I wasn't in the conversation, so I don't feel like I was getting up in your business if this was you. But um, someone was saying basically that they want to love God more, but they can't love God more. And I think that's kind of true. On our own power, we actually can't even love God more. It's the Spirit that has etched his laws into our heart, that has written them on our minds, that produces of a love of God in us. The Spirit is the love of God stored up into our hearts. Let's be reminded that it is through the Spirit that we find ourselves more yielded to Jesus. i got to figure out how to turn this on, Kyle. I'm not smart enough for this thing. Oh, there I am. So what I want to say is to walk closely in the Spirit. We're called to walk in the Spirit. Like in Galatians 5 when it says, I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We can walk through our trials in two different modes. In the old way of the flesh or in the new way of the spirit that produces faithfulness, a yielding to Jesus, a love for Jesus. And to be honest, it's easy for me to flip-flop in between the two and not put away my former manner of life. Walking in the spirit leads to life and peace. It can also lead to hard situations and suffering, but it leads to an inner life of peace. As it says in Romans 8, our minds are to be set on the Spirit. And those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. As we walk according to the Spirit, our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. And it becomes a way that we go through our trials where we're not just looking at how things are going on on the surface. We're not just looking at our circumstances that are bogging us down, that are struggling, our struggles. We're able to see it from an elevated view in the Spirit. Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're called to be set apart by the Spirit for God's sake. In the sanctification of the Spirit, we're supposed to be a living stone, rock solid in the ways of the Lord, but you guys, it's only in the Spirit that we can walk like this. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Remember that. 
You have one to strengthen you and help it, you and your child. Peter says we're supposed to be undefiled and we're living pure lives like a royal priest. And it can only be through the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Like in Ephesians 4, 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Some translations say don't quench it. Some say don't extinguish it. Like when you put your hand over flame, like a match. Don't extinguish the Spirit. Don't grieve it. Find yourself falling into rhythm with the Spirit. Romans 8 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And a child of God walks through their various trials and suffering differently than a child well, of this world. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's funny. In the midst of this, he's talking about their inheritance and their heir and children of God. And then he says, provided that we suffer with them. It's almost like he's mapping out a healthy expectation of what it means to be a child of God, that we will suffer in seasons and at times. And if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. There's no way to escape the suffering in various trials of this world, but there is a way that we can try to escape from it by walking in the flesh and not the spirit. First Peter even said in chapter one that we've been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. He's talking about the spirit. The spirit is always speaking and doing something. We need to find a way to create a lifestyle where we are hearing the Spirit constantly, consistently, and regularly, honestly. We need to become aware of the Spirit, and it takes our focus and attention. Um, I'm a surfer. I went out and I went surfing yesterday, if you can call it that. I really just kind of flopped around in the waves like a soggy pancake out there. <laughs> waves were not very good, but also I'm not the best surfer. But I've been surfing up and down the northwest coast for like at least five years now in a, in a super thick wetsuit. You can barely move your arms in. And you guys, if everyone who doesn't surf is like, oh, the water is so cold. How can you go out there? But I'm telling you, these wetsuits are like, there's, there's like magical properties or something to make them warm. No, it's just super thick neoprene that makes you sweat and it keeps the water in there, but it heats the water up. It's, I, it's, it's, it is maybe a little magic. Not, not the witchcraft kind though, don't worry. As a surfer, one thing about surfing is you put an incredible amount of time into studying waves, becoming aware of what waves are doing. You read the surf forecast several times each day, even when you're at work, supposed to be doing other things. And after a while, it's not just like you're looking for good surf going around on the Washington coast so you could go out there this weekend. After a point, it becomes like more of an obsession and an interest in, well, what's the ocean doing? There's all these things on a surf forecast of like wave energy, of, of how much energy is literally in the ocean, and that has a lot to do with current. There's like what's going on with wind direction. There has a lot with what goes on with wave height. There's periods in between the waves. There's, you become like this little meteorologist who's like figuring out everything about the weather and the waves because you're interested in it. You grow this relationship with the ocean. And once you're actually in the water, you know, you. you, you when you show up at the beach, you stand on the shore and you don't actually just get on your wetsuit or your board. You stand there and you just watch the ocean intensely for like 30 minutes. It's like you drove all this way to the beach and the first thing you do is you just glare at the ocean like Clint Eastwood. Because <laughs> you want to know exactly what it's doing to know which board you should get out of your quiver and what the day is going to be like. And then you paddle out past the breakers, past the whitewater, and you study the curl of each wave, you watch for sets, you observe the periods in between the waves, you figure out where the wave is peaking, is it farther to the right, is it farther to the left? You take note of what the wind is doing, if it's offshore, a crosswind, an onshore wind. You study it so hard, it's like you become one with it, like you're, you kind of forget yourself and, and your total focus is on the waves. You, you, you sort of sink into the motion of the ocean. You, you find a lot of joy in the ocean when you're a surfer. We, we need to be kind of obsessed with the spirit like this, constantly reading the 
surf forecast of what the Spirit is doing each day, even at work. We need, we need moments to just, I think, check in, to let ourselves sing into it. We, we need to become obsessed and interested in what, what the Spirit is doing. Because the Spirit isn't just on a Sunday morning. It's not just on a Monday night at Thrive. The Spirit is a daily thing that we have so much access to. We need to observe it and listen to it intensely. What if we loved the Spirit like a surfer loves the ocean? We just became obsessed with it. We felt a relationship with it. How, how, how do we get there with coming to a love of focus and interest and awareness and what the Spirit is doing? Because that will determine how we go through our trials. It's obviously Jesus' finished work on the cross that gives us a new life in the Spirit, but we still have to walk in it, and we can still flop out of the rhythms of the Spirit. How do, how do we position our lives in a way that can take notice of the Spirit more. And I'm, I'm afraid it, when the trials come and the suffering comes, if we haven't been walking in the Spirit, we might be a little spiritually rusty. We might be a little spiritually out of shape. Perhaps the way to approach our trials, if we're not going through them right now, the ones that are going to come, is to start now walking in the Spirit. And if we're feeling spiritually out of shape and getting tossed around already by the wind and the waves of our trials... The Spirit's gracious. He knows what we need in the time of our troubles. He can still help us despite whether we put in the pre-workout or not. What, what do we have to do to get more tuned into the Spirit? One, I think we simply need to give it more of our attention, whether that's through the reading of the Word or prayer or through the fellowship of the saints. I love that, the fellowship of the saints. That means you guys hang out with each other and have spiritual conversation and encourage one another and bear each other's burdens. The coals are hotter when you push them together. Fellowship is one of the ways that I think should be one of the spiritual disciplines we make sure we check off. We make sure we're having fellowship with the saints. And that looks like more than just um, going to a program. That means like a interconnectedness with each other. We, we need to um, quiet oftentimes our souls, our desires, the busyness inside to hear the Spirit. We need to be willing to let God prune off things that break the connection with us in the Spirit. We need more space in our life. It's almost like hard to figure out how to organize our lives and carve out more space, but I, I rarely find someone that's like, I just cannot find more time with God. You might need to find creative ways to spend time with God and listen to the Spirit, for sure. Whether it's on your drive to work or on your lunch break. But, but most of the time, I think that's just this like false idea that we have. We don't have time in our life for, well, Spirit. I think it's mostly like, actually, we don't have time for those other things. It's probably how it should be. Uh, what if you dove headfirst into a season of, of relentlessly throwing yourself into a daily walk with the Spirit. For uh, a while back, I tried to see how long I could go just constantly in God's presence, constantly aware of the Spirit, and, and constantly be in this unyielding state. It was like a, a spiritual fast, an internal fast for me, of just constantly be trying to remind me of God. I lasted like two weeks before I got distracted and confused and went back to kind of just operating in my own madness. Um, but man, that was a good two weeks. I need to get back on that. I need to get back on that track. What if, what if we kind of lost ourselves and became unhinged, unleashed, unrestrained in our pursuit of the Spirit? The Celts long ago they called the Holy Spirit the wild goose. My wife has it tattooed on her foot. Um, good story about why she has it tattooed on her foot later. But the Celts used to call the Holy Spirit the wild goose because it was something to be chased after and followed wherever it would lead. I think if we want to change some of those labels on Christianity and the false blame and perhaps just some of the presumptions our world has about what it looks like to live a Christian life, we have to live by the Spirit. Our, our non-Christian friends, many of them have been to church already and they have this mindset of, I've been there, I've tried that, didn't work for me, it's not relevant to me, or those people, they're just like anyone else, their lives look just as normal as me and I'm just as good as them and their good deeds don't outshine mine and maybe there is a little truth like that because maybe we have lost a little bit of our 
oomph to walk in the spirit. I know that I need help in this. They don't see a spiritual people. They see a religious people. And oftentimes I can be so religious just having it be face value and lip service than actually walking in the spirit. But Christianity is meant to look like a tree bearing much fruit. It's supposed to have an aroma of Christ to it. It's supposed to be a taste of saltiness in a tasteless world. It simply comes from one word, abiding. Abiding. Abide in Jesus. Like a branch abides in the vine that's connected to it. I believe that abiding in the Spirit is the key to how we will walk out our various trials and suffering. You know, if Christianity... If my walk with Jesus was graded by how much time I abided in the Spirit, I'm, I'm pretty afraid of what grade I would get. Now, I don't necessarily think God is grading me, but, and I know I'm believed I'm saved by nothing but the blood of Jesus, and my works aren't measured, but I think sometimes I grade my Christian walk in ways that are so far from how much I'm abiding. I grade them on the outward things I'm doing. So much we assume we're graded on what we do, how disciplined we are in our spiritual disciplines, and we feel like we're walking closely with Jesus if we're checking all the boxes and we spent this much time in prayer. Sometimes we grade ourselves on how evangelical we are, or how prophetic we are, or how much we love others, but rarely will we engage in the true thing of how much are we abiding in Jesus. What if God wants us to focus on this? How much time we spend connected. You know, you have a little app on your phone that tells you how much screen time you have, and I am scared to look at my eye. I just avoid that kind of thing, right? What if there was a little app that told us how much we're actually abiding in Jesus? Not just doing things for Jesus, but connected to Jesus. Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. John 15. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Let me be clear. Abiding looks like keeping his commandments. But keeping his commandments comes from the Spirit itself. We have to follow and walk in the Spirit to keep his commandments. It's not the letter of the law from self-effort, but it's through the Spirit of life that we keep his commandments. But we can't be abiding in Jesus and out sinning. That's simply what it means. Didn't Jesus save us for this purpose, to be a people who are connected to him, abiding in him, enjoying communion with him, and the fruits that come out of that? I think if we just let ourselves abide in the Spirit, then the Spirit starts to well up in us. It starts to stir in us. It starts to fill our cup so much that it overflows onto people around us. The works come, the discipline, the evangelism, the prophecy, the love, they all come when we're abiding. This is an encouragement to our suffering, to our trials, to be a people who abide in them, who walk in the Spirit in them, who are attuned to the Spirit. And I'm telling you, the joy we have when we walk in the Spirit in our trials is unworldly. It doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't even make sense to me sometimes how good the Spirit is when I'm walking in it. I'm like, this, it's... Sometimes, like, there's so much peace and there's not a reason for peace. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. That peace that surpasses understanding thing is translated as shalom, shalom, I believe. Yeah. Double shalom. Is that right? I heard that somewhere. Anyways. <laughs> That's just the truth. I heard that. I think our friend Mitch told me that, so it must be right. Dude. Shalom, shalom. To abide in the Spirit looks like he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It looks less like us in the storm dwelling in the shelter. There's a shelter through the trials, through the storms, through the suffering, where we're protected. It's to abide in the shadow of the Almighty. You know, for, for me, the thing, I'm just going to say this as a, a little bit of a tangent. For, for me, the thing that keeps me um, kind of getting thrown out of sync of the spirit, like when someone's playing a record and all of a sudden it's like, and it like totally gets off the needle. The thing that totally gets me off the, the needle of the spirit is fear of man. I, I hardly hear it preached about, but, the, but, but it's fear of man is I think one of the things that totally throws me off with following the spirit. I often try to come off so agreeable to others 
I often want others to respect me and see me as decent. If I'm honest, I kind of lack a boldness, honestly. I can get up here and talk, but when sometimes when it looks like me doing the walk, like living out suffering, loving the people close to me, loving the people who are hard for me to love, I lack a boldness often. If I'm honest, I fear man's opinion of me. I think one of the things that is so subtly suffocating to the spread of the gospel is fear of man, is fear of what other people think of us. And if I'm honest, I struggle with it. We, we can follow the spirit when it feels good and when we sing songs and our emotions are up. But the moment the spirit starts pushing us out of our comfort zone to do something against the social grain, we kind of build up walls and we're like, well, was that really you, Holy Spirit? Now that seems a little weird. It's like all of a sudden we question the spirit's voice and we're like, oh, maybe that's just my own thoughts. When God calls us to do something a little radical or a little bit socially against the grain. How often do I try to fit in rather than dive forward into whatever step the Spirit is leading me on? I even have fear of man when I'm singing songs in worship. I'm going to be honest. This is something I'm working through in the Spirit. It's to just, if I need to lay down on the ground or I need to get on my knees or I need to belt out with my croaky voice at the top of my lungs, it's funny, even in my worship with God, I'm often afraid of others. Pray for me. We need to become aware of the Spirit. We need to walk in it consistently. We need to abide in it. We need to follow it without borders. We need a message like 1 Peter to be elect exiles, sanctified and sprinkled, to walk as people who are chosen, to be people who are chosen, to be in the world but not of it, to be unyielding in our marriage to Jesus, to have the Spirit help us be good and faithful spouses in our heart of hearts with all the things that we choose not to bring into communion with God. We need the Spirit's help to confess our sin. You know, I, I think some of us don't really suffer and go through very many trials because we don't follow the Spirit. We, we stay as, as... We do whatever is in our power often to stay in our comfort zone. Now, some of us, life has just brought us suffering and trials, whether it's sick parents or, or I'm not sure what our struggle is. Sometimes just life brings us storms. But sometimes we, Jesus wants to lead us into dark places and be a light there. He wants to lead us into hard places. Maybe he wants me to serve old people, and I can avoid these kind of things. Perhaps if we followed the Spirit, we would be led to places of suffering and darkness to bring the light of Jesus. Perhaps we'd be stretched to serve more, give more, rest more if we followed the Spirit. Perhaps if we followed the Spirit, more suffering would come. We would defy the crud in our culture and take on persecution from our family, our friends, and our Facebook trolls. You can't really follow the Spirit and not get your hands messy with loving people and bringing light to dark places. Sometimes, um, you know, Christian fellowship is so beautiful and good, and we've been, we've been going to the same fellowship for so long, but it becomes our only kind of thing we're doing as far as um, with Jesus and with other people. Sometimes we need to not just go to Thrive and not just go to church. And for me, not just to hang out with my middle schoolers. Sometimes I need to go find a place that is stretching for me. I pray about this because I've got to count the cost. It's a commitment to serve people in hard places. The thing we should be scared of is God giving us a really comfortable life that enables us not to depend on him. The thing we should really fear is not having trials in our life that test our faith. The thing we should fear is not having suffering and trials that strengthen our faith and our witness to others. God knows how much suffering we can handle, even if it doesn't always feel like it. It's like this is too much. He knows. He will not place anything ill-fitting into our life. He will not place nothing more than we can handle in the spirit. There's definitely way too, I can't even handle just being a human on a normal day in the flesh. It may feel like we can't handle it, but ultimately God just wants to give us more of our heart through it. I want to say too, as we go through trials and suffering, I think ultimately what God wants is for us to give him our heart in it, for us to, him to tell us about the pain and the struggle the trial in it. He'll worry about, he'll shape us into people who perform well through it. But ultimately, I think obedience starts with giving God our hearts and all of the complexities and feelings that it has in it. 
No suffering and trial in our life will be for no reason. Remember, God allowed Job to be oppressed by Satan because he knew Job wouldn't curse him. And Job's faithfulness is a witness to us readers of the scriptures and a witness to Job's friends. And it's not guaranteed, but it's cool when it happens, the Lord restored Job's household. And that, again, that's not guaranteed. But the Lord will give us an inheritance that's un imperishable, undefiled, a reward in heaven. So even if we don't see it in this lifetime, it is coming eternally, forever. You know, I, I think the truth is in my heart, I, I kind of want to suffer more. Not suffer without cause by my own mistakes, but I want to suffer more for Jesus. I want to live more radically for Jesus. I want to abide more. I want this. I want to be willing to step into more God-appointed things in my day. I want to go the extra mile to bless someone. I don't want to live so insulated and isolated in my comfort that my tolerance bar for what I would do for God is super low. I want this. I don't want to give a crap about what people think. I don't want to fear man. And yet the same heart that once those things gets busy, afraid, restless, is lured and tempted by this world. I think I simply need to depend on God to live less of a complacent, spiritually C-minus lifestyle. You know, a C-minus isn't that bad, right? Well, some of you all are 4.0, 4.3 students in here. You're like, A-minus? Like, it's the death of me, right? I was not that way. I was okay with getting Bs, honestly. I was like, B student, pretty good. I'll probably get into like some okay college. Okay, but even in my book, a C-minus isn't that bad. Some of us treat Christianity like this and our walk with Jesus like this. A C minus isn't that bad. Look, again, it's not, it's not how you're graded, but what the point is, sometimes we're okay with being lukewarm. Sometimes we're okay with avoiding some suffering. Sometimes we're okay with slogging through our trials a little unfaithfully. What would it take for us to blossom forth into the person Christ knows we're meant to be? I really think it would just take abiding, you guys. I think it would take us abiding. I don't think it's going to come through strong-armed attempts. I don't think it's going to come from recommitting to spiritual disciplines. Now, that's a very good thing. But I don't ultimately think that's what it's going to be. I don't think it's going to be reading more Christian books. I don't think it's going to be knowing all the right theology. I think it's going to come from abiding in Jesus. Sometimes abiding looks like those things, but sometimes those things replace abiding, if you know what I mean. Abiding comes from salvation and obedience to his command through the Spirit. In the abiding, God's love, it woos us, it revives us, it refreshes us. Remember, mostly what the branch does connected to the vine is just has the vine's life pumping into it. And the branch is just really this kind of middleman in producing fruit, if you know what I mean. It's not like the branch can produce fruit on its own, but it's through being connected to the vine. Abiding gives us strength to face the trials. It reminds us of our imperishable hope our imperishable inheritance. When we're abiding, we see clearly that death has lost its sting and this life is temporal. We have nothing to fear. But you guys, I don't really want to suffer. I get scared to suffer. And I'm almost into the text. Don't worry, we're gonna read the Bible. We're gonna read the Bible today. We're gonna read it. But I do wanna give an encouragement on suffering that links into our text. I get scared to suffer. I, I have been through enough hard times that I don't really want to go into a season of that. And I just tell God that. I God, God, God doesn't want us to fake our courage. God wants us to take our fears honestly and make them into courage. I, I, I think, though, I do need to come out from under the bed sheets of my fear, look at this imaginary monster of suffering in the eye, and realize that God works all things for the good of those who love him. I don't like to suffer, but when we're posed with suffering for God, we can either have an escapist mentality or a marriage mentality. In marriage, well, it's in sickness or health. It's in suffering or bliss. You're unyielding, you're committed, you serve your spouse. This is the way to walk through our suffering with Jesus. As a person who's married to him, that's not going to run away from him, that's not going to leave him, that's not going to hide from him, that's not going to withhold from him. The marriage mentality says, I have no other love. All of my love is yours. And it's the Holy Spirit in us that reverberates that love to God, not on our own drumming up, but in the Spirit. With all this in mind, 
Take a deep breath for a second. We're going to get on the text. I need that. It's the fourth session, you guys. Okay. We've got three more people to look at today. We're going out with a bang because some of this stuff uh, is a little controversial. We're going to be talking about the bond servant who suffers a brutal master. We're going to be talking about the wife who's supposed to be submissive to an unbelieving husband. And we're going to talk about the husband who needs to cherish and pray for his wife. These are all fitting within this theme of suffering well in a way that deepens our faith and is a witness to other people. Remember that key in there. Um, let's go chapter 2, verse 18 through 21. And I would like a volunteer reader. My voice is, is starting to strain. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you are if for what credit is it when you are sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He can, oh yeah, that was it. Thank you, yeah. This points to this heart posture, whether we're a bond server or not, we can apply to our lives and have in all circumstances, that we're willing to do good and show honor in a way that no one has anything ill to say about us, but points to Jesus. We're willing to do good even when wrong is done to us. Now, there was a, there's a Roman institution in place at the time of bond servants. Sometimes they're called slaves, but it's not like slavery happened in North America. It was generally um, bond servants were given pay and it could eventually buy their freedom and they would serve a household. This passage does not condone human trafficking or abuse. The Bible, like in Philemon, does say if you can free a bond servant, you should do so. If you're a bond servant, you can. Are, you should try to become free. The Bible does also say to not treat your bond servants poorly. It's not rooting for the master in this text who's brutal. Obviously, in this text, it says, um, if you sin or are beaten for it, you endure. I think Peter's writing to people who have brutal masters that often beat them when they're bad. And he's saying, don't do anything bad um, so that you can show your master the goodness Oh God, when, when bad things are done to us, though, it feels like we often could slander, we could, model, we could model our increasing American culture like bitterness, wrath, cancel culture, of um, gaslighting each other when hurt is done to us. It's hard to have this heart of the bond servant. We can do it through the spirit, though. When, when someone burns us, will we speak dirt about them? When a church fails us, will we talk trash about it? When we're fired, will we resent the company? When we get broken up or divorced with, will you blame the other completely instead of recognizing your own faults? How we act in situations can show the goodness of God when hurt is done to us, or it can just add to the hurt and anger and make a more complex situation. This is why Peter writes, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Can we allow the injustice done to us be an opportunity to grow our ability to endure and do good in the face of evil? Remember yesterday we talked about God hears the voice of the martyrs in end times. He doesn't hear the voice of the rebels and the oppressed. God hears the people who suffer well in the face of injustice. It's a beautiful thing in the sight of God. Peter writes, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. It just sums up the voice of Jesus on the cross that says, in the face of injustice, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He's able to not take the injustice personally, even though it is personal, because he knows his identity is in God. 
When the wrong done to us, it's so easy to take it personally. But when Jesus says they don't know what they do, he doesn't make it about them sinning against him. He makes it about them sinning against God. And he says God will make it right in his way. Let's uh, go on to verses 22 to 24. It says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. In return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued and trusted himself to him who judges justly. Like we talked about last night, Jesus trusted to, for God to make things right. Like 99% of the time, our instincts are not in this direction, though. We have to fight our own instinct of being hurt and frustrated when injustice is done to us. And we're blinded by that hurt and anger. Can we go to God with our hurt and anger instead of taking the solution under our own hands? That is in the place of abiding, that we go to God in the midst of our suffering. We wait on the Lord to make things right unless he has clearly appointed us to confront it. And if he has clearly appointed us to confront it, he goes before us. Remember that. It's not actually you. That just goes and deals with it on your own. If we leave things unchecked with the Lord and take them into our own hands, we end up, end up spreading more hurt and anger. But we're, so, we're supposed to show strength in these times. Patience in the face of injustice is true strength. Prayer in the face of injustice is true strength. Trust in God in the face of injustice is true strength. It's weakness to this world. The world wants us to do an eye for an eye. The world wants us to get back at them. The world wants us to roast them. The world wants us to get what we deserve. It sees patience as weakness. It sees service in the face of injustice as weakness. But we are not of this world. We're going to be a testimony to Jesus by the way we handle the injustice done to us. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Do you not remember the injustice that Christ faced was for our sins? Sometimes we're so hurt by injustice, but we don't remember. We have committed so much injustice in this world, and yet God in his mercies, his goodness, and his love for us has absorbed our injustice into the body of Christ gave his own son generously for our injustice. So if Christ suffered for our sins, how much should we have a tolerance to suffer for the sins of others? And I'm not saying you should accept all sorts of abuse. I'm not saying you should accept all sorts of meanness. But what I'm saying is it shouldn't create resentment in your heart. And if it does create resentment, we can still take it to God. We can still forgive seven times 70. We can still show good because God makes the sun shine on the just and the unjust, the rain fall on the just and the unjust. We have that spirit living in us. If Christ suffered in order to lift us up, how much more should we be willing to suffer well while lifting others up to be a witness of him? Oftentimes, our greatest moments of suffering are our greatest opportunities to shine Jesus' light to others. Doesn't matter if you're gifted in music or you're gifted in preaching or you have the gift of healing. Everyone's going to suffer in this room. No matter what your gifting is, no matter how talented you are, whether you're ever be a ministry leader or not, you're going to suffer. And I believe that's going to hold more weight in witnessing the people to Jesus than any program we put on. Okay. Chapter two, done. Yay! We're gonna go into chapter three. We're gonna go all the way to seven. 
all the controversial stuff we get into now, and this is the time you're going to have so much grace on me because I can't package it all into one sermon, nor am I smart enough to fully say it in a way that is like, you know, John Piper status or something. <laughs> what? No, we're going to chapter 3, verse 7. Yeah. And I do encourage you to read the rest of 1 Peter chapters 4 and 5 after this. I wish we had three more weeks of this and we could get into 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. But I think, honestly, I would uh, dissipate into lack of sleep so much. I would just stop existing as a human. So it's probably good we get to go home today and rest in our beds and watch Rings of Power and not complain that it's not like the Silmarillion. We need to get over that. Does any haters of Ring of Power here? I challenge you with brotherly love to argue. <laughs> okay. Let's get into chapter 3. Let's get into chapter 3. And I just want to say as we get into chapter 3 about submissive wives and all these things, remember it is in the same theme of suffering well to be a witness to Jesus. It's the same thing as the citizen who struggles with his government and the same thing as a bond servant with his master. It's the same thing. Let's dive into it in uh, verse 1 and 2. It says, likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, may they be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. Now, not all of us are wives in here, and not all of us have to be submissive to our husband, but all of us can learn from this example, okay? To suffer injustice well to be a witness to Jesus. Peter is speaking to a relevant issue at the time. And this is really important to hear the context. He's speaking to Christian women in this pagan culture who are married to unbelieving husbands. He is urging them to be a witness to their unbelieving husband, to be subject to their husband, fits with this whole example again of the honoring citizen and the servant. The wife of the unbelieving husband should show kindness, care, faithfulness, compassion to her husband, even if her husband is rather unkind, uncaring, rude, grotesque, watching ESPN too much, drinking too much beer. She should still be kind whether he's lazy, whether he's obnoxious, whether he's rude. Rather than reacting with trying to control him or nag at him or withholding herself from him, she should have a heart of gold so that she, the husband, will see the goodness of God. A heart that shows love despite the lack of love she is given. That is not an easy thing to do. That is only in the spirit that a wife can do that. And only in the spirit that a husband can love their spouse when they are not shown love and value. That's incredibly hard. Incredibly uh, opportunity to let us grow in Jesus and be a witness. She should do this because her value and her security is not defined by her husband. It's defined by Jesus. And being subject does not mean to stay in an abusive, unfaithful marriage. The Bible does give uh, really clear reasons to get a divorce. That's not what the saying. I want to um, try to dispel a little bit of the word of submission, though, because it brings up all sorts of weird ideas. The, the ideas of wives being submissive to their husbands, it can, it can kind of trigger some and make others smugly sit in the false security of domineering power. The Bible says that both husbands and wives are to submit to each other in Ephesians 5. Submission uh, to your spouse isn't just singled out to wives. It's, it's for both, husband and wife. And there's an equality in that and a responsibility that's equal in that. So the man pounding Coors Light while watching ESPN, demanding his wife brings him nachos, who loves to gloat the word submission from the Bible, that guy's off. That guy... <laughs> thinking of a specific man. <laughs> that was very descriptive. No, 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 I'm not. I just, sorry, that sounds great humor. Um, but, but, you know, that, that really grotesque idea of a husband kind of domineering and, and using this word as an excuse for how his wife should treat him. That's not what the Bible's pointing to. Ephesians 5 says, husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. Christ bled died, suffered for the church even when the church was rotten and unjust to him. Christ gave his body up for the church to serve them. That's, that's almost a higher description and degree of faithfulness and care and love, of service, of submission, 
that a husband should give. That's like very clear. And, and just to make it clear in, in verse 7, if you go on to look at it, on it, Peter doesn't just call out wives to be submissive. He says a lot of pretty harsh things to husbands. In verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. That's a high level of responsibility. And he's, again, Peter's not just singing that wise to be submissive. For, for others, the, the word submission brings up the ideas of headship. And we're not going to get too much into headship, but biblical headship is worth studying. And, but remember, it's not just a hierarchy in headship because both men and women are supposed to be submissive. For, for others, it brings a twisted assumption of a hierarchy in the family unit with women as second-class citizens. But this is a grotesque way to understand the word submission. Let's make this clear. Men and women are created equal. They are equally co-heirs of Jesus' salvation and redemption. Perhaps men and women are different but equal in value and importance. Perhaps they are different. But one thing that is certain is they're equal in value and importance. And Christianity historically has played a major role in giving women dignity. From the God of the Old Testament who hears Hagar's pleas of suffering and injustice and says, I'm the God who sees you. To the God of the Old Testament who hears Sarah's prayers of infertility. From the God of the Old Testament who raises up Esther to change the nation. From Jesus being a, a unique rabbi with women disciples. To the writings of the apostles saying that men should submit to their wives and husbands. Or uh, wives should submit to their husbands. To Peter's writings we read here, women are always elevated in the Bible, way beyond in where they were at in history, how there was more of a patriarchal, often corrupt society, treating women as undervalued and undercared for. Peter is not demeaning women here. He's not pushing an old school approach to women's roles. He's simply speaking to believing wives into an unbelieving marriage to be salt and light, to give their husbands no reason to speak ill of them, but to be a witness to their husbands to suffer injustice well, to grow their character, to please God. How much could we take this principle and flip the script of a man who has an unbelieving wife and that he should love and cherish and care for her in a way that reminds her and helps her see the love of Jesus? A little further uh, dispelling on the word submission. Submission doesn't mean you're passive and weak. When you are submissive for the Lord's sake, that is strength in a marriage. It's courage. It means being peaceful instead of retaliating. It doesn't mean you have to agree with everything your husband or your wife says. It means you communicate in a gentle way. It means you be considerate. It means you show honor and do good despite the honor that's shown to you. Submission looks like not elevating ourselves above the other. A lot on submission. But that's because it has a lot of nuances. We, it's kind of a trigger word for some. Okay? Um, we're going to jump into verses 3 through 6, and uh, I'm going to ask someone to read verses 3 through 6. I don't even care what translation is. Let's go for it. Let's get wild. Let's get KJV in there. You want to? Uh, sure. 3 through Thanks, 6. Dude. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Get ready. <laughs> Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Arranging the hair wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, be, being submissive to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Good. There's no these or thou's, man. Is that really the King James? It's the new King James. Oh, it's the new King James. Dude. Everyone knows the KJV is even more spiritual than the KJV. Sarcasm highly spoken right there. But find a translation you feel convicted to read. That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Okay, there, there's some things in here that uh, can get misconstrued, so let's try to... Um, 
Let's try to analyze them and uh, hear from the Spirit well in this. Let me say that Peter's still making the same point here. Be sanctified, be set apart, living for Jesus in a way that shows godliness to other people. It says the adorning, that is external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing we wear. We can do these things in a way where they become idolatry. And it's not just women, men can be overly concerned with their outward appearance in a way that um, it's, it's over consumerism, it's, 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 over, uh, it's over flaunting, it's not necessarily hiding, hiding the things of God. But what's beautiful to God is a gentle and quiet spirit. That doesn't mean a woman who never talks and, and, and some guy saying, well, women aren't supposed to blab or whatever, how we make it so grotesque because they're supposed to have a gentle and quiet spirit. It says nothing about a gentle and quiet mouth. It says a gentle and quiet spirit. And I'm a man and I blab quite often, so I know it's not just to women. A gentle and quiet spirit, a spirit that is peaceful, a spirit that's considerate, a spirit that's content in the Lord, a spirit that is set on pleasing God, a spirit that doesn't have to impress others because it knows their value in Jesus. I'm not saying you can't be fashionista. I'm not saying you can't wear jewelry. I'm not saying you can't braid your hair or do some kind of doo-bop. What's the hairdo you were talking about today, Tress? The Dyson Air Wrap. I don't I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I, I don't even want to get into what that is. It doesn't mean you can't have the Dyson Hair Wrap. But perhaps we have to consider the Dyson Air Wrap. Let me tell a quick story that has to do with fashionista things. Maybe I can connect it. Tressa just had her uh, 26th birthday. She created this Facebook group for a party we were going to do for it, and she put up all these really weird pictures of, like, fashion runway stuff of people wearing, like, futuristic clothes. Um, and it was, like, people in, like, space suits and, like, these weird balloon pants and uh, these crazy Nike things that looked like Croc and Nikes and a Lamborghini combined. And she wanted us to dress in our version of whatever we thought was futuristic <laughs> and show up and walk through Tacoma like these fashionistas. It was so uh, fun. And, uh, you know, there's people wearing, I think Shannon wore like leather, like some leather, full leather outfit type thing. People wearing leopard skin shirts and denim jumpers and all sorts of odd things. One guy dressed up as a, a, a wizard with this weird globe thing and skin tight little tights um, and pointy shoes. And I was like, dude, okay. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm just saying, there's, there's an art to kind, of, to kind of wanting to express ourselves with clothing and the Dyson haircut and all that. And I don't think God is against that. And I don't think God's legalistic against that. But what I'm saying is sometimes the way we, the way we adorn ourselves outwardly can come from a vain place. A, a, a place of wanting people to see us and to have more value the way they see us. When really we shouldn't be concerned with how others value us. We shouldn't be concerned with how we come off to others. If we should be concerned about anything about how we come off to others is that we show more of Jesus and his goodness. Not letting our clothes and our hair be a distraction towards that. It's really getting into a heart matter. Do we have a pure heart in the way we are adorn ourselves or do we have a vain heart? Are we doing it to suck up people's approval of us or are we doing it to show God's goodness? This doesn't mean you can't wear makeup or jewelry, like I said. It means we're supposed to prioritize God to live for him, to have a pure heart is that priority. My, my wife, I was talking to her about this yesterday because I'm like, I don't know uh, how well I understand these things as a man, to be honest. And again, I think this passage is applicable to men too who get into impressing others with their thing. Well, my wife often said, perhaps this is true, I wouldn't know. But she often said that women don't dress to impress boys. Women mostly dress to impress other women. Like it's a status thing, like who's walking in here with the highest stilettos, who's walking in here with, I don't really know how that works, but um, I think that it must be a thing. Is that a thing? The Mariahs? That's a thing. Okay, cool. Yeah, sometimes for, perhaps, and that can be for men too, wearing clothes to promote their status, or maybe it's not even clothes 
for men or women. Sometimes it's flaunting their career, flaunting their paycheck, flaunting these outward things to impress others, to try to steal value from their approval, when really we should be concerned with the approval of God and the way we should choose to come off is in a way that shows more of Jesus and his goodness. Let's not be too legalistic about this, but let's see where our hearts are at in this. There is no uh, shame in women being beautiful either. I think it, my wife said that it glorifies God to rejoice in your beauty as a woman and perhaps to rejoice in your beauty as a man too. Be thankful for the body God gave you. Be confident in the body God gave you. I wish Tressa was preaching right now and I was not. Um, I feel very, uh, I feel very, perhaps like I don't understand these things as, as well as I should. Perhaps like uh, I maybe haven't been on as deep of a journey and I know many people struggle with the way they look. Um, perhaps there's many in here with more wisdom and more experience in these things. And uh, if you get a chance to them, talk to them. But remember that our bodies are supposed to be used as a spiritual sacrifice, ultimately. We looked at Romans 12, 1 yesterday. Our bodies are to be offered up as God. Perhaps the way we dress could be offered up to God. And that doesn't, again, mean you have to wear, like, dresses all the time that cover your ankles. Now, if you really think that's what God wants you to do, you need to do it, okay? No one can take that conviction from you. But also, if uh, you know that's not the heart of God for you, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that says you've got to wear dresses like that. <laughs> we need a pure heart and the reasons for how we choose to present ourselves, both men and women. And I don't know if I should get into talking about this, but I, I'm going to, and, and so give me some advice. Okay, you know, there is that like, whole idea of like modest is hottest that some women just roll their eyes at. And I feel bad for you that it was made into that really annoying catchphrase itself. Just literally the verbiage on that isn't great. Right? Again, they may see this as um, controlling and legalistic, and they may feel kind of the shame of, of Christian culture telling women that they have to always be modest. And while modesty I, is totally scriptural, I don't think it should be used in a way to whack people. There has a way to kill the creativity God has given you and how you dress yourself and uh, are confident. But, but, but sometimes there's this rebellious thing that isn't about God. It's, it's, it, it's a fight back against the modest and hottest thing where it's like, look, I, I, and I want to say it compassionately and gently, and this isn't just for women, right? Men can wear these really nice tank tops with their bulging muscles. I don't want to get too graphic here, okay? But we can be super vain as men too, right? Um, like, again, I probably shouldn't be talking about all this, but we're going for it. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, there can be this fight back, though, where we, do, we, we can sometimes lose some of the spiritual truth of modesty. Um, and I think, too, we live in such a hyper-sexualized culture where women have been so objectified. And, and men can be very objectified, too, um, and often are in media. But, but at, there's this like, kind of push and, and perhaps a wrong heart of fighting back against that objectification where you're like, well, I don't care if you sexualize me. I'm going to flaunt my body the way I want, whether it hurts you or not. And I, and I don't think women or men should ever be objectified, but I also think we shouldn't just decide to flaunt our bodies just because we want to fight back against someone else's problems, right? Again, I shouldn't be talking about these things. Okay, let's just keep going on with the scripture. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, I'm going to get into, well, I'm going to read just these verses again. First, this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I believe this is actually Peter reiterating his point about doing good while injustice is done to you. To display that heart posture, to submit ourselves to the unbelieving husband, to submit ourselves to people who do wrong against us, to show God's goodness. Now remember Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, Abraham technically cheated on Sarah, didn't he? Now Sarah may have prompted him to do some of that and Abraham was passive in some of that prompting, but ultimately Sarah had to live the rest of her years with a husband that cheated on her. Injustice was done to her even though there was some sin on her part. She had to still show kindness, love, submission, considering him after that almost marriage-splitting act happened with Hagar. 
this is how she chose to handle it, by still calling him Lord, which brings up a lot of nuances too, but, but ultimately by being submissive in a spiritual way. She had to forgive him, to live with him, to still have a child with him. And her submission displayed godliness. Okay, let's get on to the husbands, our last verse for this. Verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What a verse to end on. Because the weaker vessel thing is like, oh, what's going on here? And it can bring up all sorts of odd stuff, you know? Okay, first let's just say this verse starts with likewise. He's pointing back to, again, this theme, suffer well, be a witness of Jesus. As a wife ought to be a shining example of Jesus' love, despite a rocky, unbelieving marriage, a man should also be an example. As a wife is consistent in her love, men also ought to be this way, showing honor. Because their wives are their co-heirs, they will share in salvation. And I don't think this means if you have an unbelieving wife just because you believe she goes to heaven, but I'm sure there's people out there who think that. I don't think that. I think Jesus' salvation is individual for each of us. Probably didn't need to say that, though. Probably just making it harder. Anyways, <laughs> let's dive into the word that we all trip over in this passage. Weaker vessel. Let me say there's many scholars with different interpretations of all this. I'm not going to list all the interpretations, but the one that I think most people land on at this point is typically we think Peter writes weaker vessel because um, typically women have less physical strength. Now, I actually think there's probably plenty of women here who are stronger than trippy old me. Don't get me wrong. And there's women tennis players who could pick me up and throw me across the room. Okay? I think the word is typically... Men are physically stronger. And again, this may not be gospel truth. This is an interpretation. Other scholars can sometimes interpret as women are the delicate vessel. Not that they are weak and secondary, but, but that women are, again, supposed to be cherished, supposed to be loved, supposed to be doted on, supposed to be considered by their husbands. And I don't know if this is specific to males, but it's, I know as a married guy, it's good to view my wife as delicate. It's good to view her as a prize, like a flower that I don't want to crumple up and smash through the way I treat her, but something to allow her to grow and breathe and blossom. Thank you, Courtney, for laughing. I can always count on Courtney. Always count on Courtney. Okay. Let me just say real quick some of my personal thoughts and how this, I think passage is helpful to me as a married man and take this with a lot of... Um, not gospel truth, but just maybe some, there is some wisdom in here. One, I don't feel like my wife is weaker. I think I am a little physically stronger than you trust, to be honest. But she's been doing yoga and working out in a habit, so that could change very quickly. Yeah. But, but what I think when I read this verse, uh, for me, is it simply reminds me to take care of her needs, to consider her, so that she doesn't have to be so self-sufficient, so that she doesn't have to be strong on her own. And I need her care and consideration as well to not just be self-sufficient. But I think there's something that, I don't know. Again, judge me as you will as I say this. But I think there, there's something that, that can make a wife and perhaps a husband withhold as they have to be self-sufficient. As they have to watch out for themselves. As they have to take care of themselves. And when they don't have their husband to comfort or care for them, I think that self-sufficiency takes what is two and supposed to become one and separates it back to oneness when we're constantly having to be self-sufficient. That's how I see my wife as the weaker vessel, not that I'm not also weak, but that I need to try to meet her needs and consider her so she doesn't have to be self-sufficient. Pray for me on my understanding of all of this. Study the interpretations on this. Take this as food for thought as I speak on this. Listen to John Piper or someone else smarter on this. Now, the last part that can be kind of confusing about this is Peter writes, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Another thing I, I believe is worth looking into and food for thought. Some means this means God will not hear your prayers if you're not considerate and loving to your wife. Perhaps so, but I question whether God is good that he'll still hear our prayers. But the way that this personally helps me in my marriage, and is a very real experience between me and God, is when I pray to God about a lot of things, you know, about my work, 
about how I'm doing, about how my friends are doing, a lot of times God interrupts me. He says, how's your wife doing? Have you forgotten about her? He's like, remember your number one responsibility, your earthly responsibility is your wife, not your youth ministry, not your friends, not your family. I mean family as far as my parents and stuff. He says, no, remember your wife. Perhaps my, par- my prayers are interrupted by God. And he's like, stop praying about other things. Pray about the most important thing I've asked you to be a good steward of in this world. And then we can pray about the other stuff. See, my prayers are kind of hindered in that way. That's the way it's been really relevant and helpful for me in this verse. And perhaps there's other interpretations we're studying. Is there a, is there a worship after this? Okay. Man, I wish I had some cool thing to end this with the bang. Verse 7. Yeah. <laughs> I see. I know. I'll end it with this. I'll end, I'll end it with this. Um, continue to read First Peter. Remember the real... There's so much meat in here. Don't let this be the only time you study 1 Peter in the next year. Read it several times. And uh, I want to just thank you guys for um, giving me time to speak and uh, being gracious with me as I stumble my way through these passages. And um, it's just been, it's been really nice um, to be able to share some of uh, my gifts with you. So um, would anyone like to pray? Just a prayer over us all. Father, thank you for being you in our lives and for showing us that we can't be you in our own lives, um, that we need you to show us how to live in all circumstances, uh, especially some of the more unpleasant ones. But your way is good. Your way is the only way. Everything else leads to death, leads to not you. But you know the plans that you have for us. Give us strength to agree with you and believe in you, despite our circumstances, and to bring things to our brothers and sisters. When we need to call upon your name, remind us that you sit on a throne of mercy uh, and, and you give out grace and mercy in our day of need. Um, you don't hold anything back that would help us. You know exactly what we need. We pray for growth. And that in the growth, we would forget you and would choose you to not hinder that. In Jesus' name, amen.